Change of power, change of fame. When I uh, grew up, I remember in the world of basketball, there was a season when the Chicago Bulls were the major team uh, in the world of basketball. I remember friends in Romania sitting up in the middle of the night uh, so they could watch the Chicago Bulls because Michael Jordan was the man who reigned the basketball world at that time. I haven't followed up closely to know what transpired after the, the, the reign of the Bulls went all down. Um, but I do know that uh, now and these days in the world of basketball, LeBron James is a pretty well-known guy. People like to watch him. He does some really cool things um, in, uh, the, in the area of uh, shooting basket- to the basketball hoop. Um, but I'm sure a time will come when even LeBron James and his world will, will be replaced by someone else, uh, by another man of another fame. Uh, and this is just sports. That, that's all I can do in the terms of sports. Um, in the terms of kingdoms, uh, nations rise and nations go down. Last weekend, I mentioned to you uh, the example from uh, St. Augustine, uh, who wrote at the time or after the the fall of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, who had been a, a, a world power for several centuries, and in 410, uh, the Visigoths came and, and took down the Roman Empire. Uh, just a century ago, or last century, um, we know how various nations in our world, in the more modern world, have risen up to power. Germany, at the beginning of, of the last century, has risen up to power, and with the coming of World War II, Germany was defeated. Today we wonder uh, which are the superpowers, Russia, China, America, and wonder who, 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 will, who will continue on to keep the pace, to keep the lead in terms of the world stage of kingdoms. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Well, this morning I want to talk to you from God's Word about the Word of God that tells us of another change of kingdoms, of another change of powers, of another change of fame, of another change of, of control. And it's more important than Chicago Bulls being replaced by another team afterwards. It's more important than Germany being defeated and replaced by other nations. It's more important than who knows what will happen after, after our time in terms of the kingdoms of this age. There's another change of kingdoms, and this one is way more important than everything else that we can experience. And this morning, I invite you to open God's Word to Revelation chapter 11. We'll be reading from verse 15 to verse 19. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 to verse 19. If you are visiting us this morning, we're so glad you're here. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. We'd love for you to have it and read it. But if you are using a pew Bible, uh, you may find our passage on page number uh, 1034. And we encourage you to read along and follow along the preaching of God's Word from this passage. Here's God's Word for us. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever 
and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord, Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and began to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for you, the dead, to be judged. And for your rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of this word and our hearts to hear well. Would you join me in prayer? Father, your word is true. What you tell us about the end of times, we want to believe. Help us today to understand what you reveal to us about the end of the age, what will happen and how it will go about. We pray that you would give us hearts that are open to hear your word, hearts that are ready to trust in you, hearts that are ready to adore and worship you. Our Father, we pray this for the glory of Christ and for our edification through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit at work among us. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. With a passage we just read, we come for the second time in the book of Revelation. We come for the second time to see the, the very end of the age. Uh, I mentioned to you when we began this book that the 21 judgments that, that comprise a major part of this book are made up of three sets of judgments, three sets of seven judgments. And with the seventh judgment, it, we are always brought to the very end of the age. And then we're, with the next set of judgments, we're brought back out and then we're going to come back to it. Well, this is the second time we come to the very end of the age, with the, uh, to the seventh uh, judgment in this second set of judgments. It's the seventh trumpet judgment. What will happen at the end of this age? Uh, Revelation wants to tell us three times, uh, and with, with more details every time, with more uh, pictures every time to help us understand what will happen as this age is drawing to the end. The short answer to the question, what will happen at the end of the age, the short answer is, there will be a change of kingdoms. There will be a change of kingdoms. And I pray and hope that you will belong to the kingdom that will last forever in that exchange of kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, we are told, will be taken over. And this is what we read in verse 15. At the sound of the seventh trumpet, John hears voices in heaven that declare loudly the following message. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Did you notice how this, this message announces as if the kingdom of the world has already begun been taken over and become the kingdom of the Lord? This is a sign that Revelation takes us to the end, proleptically, 
prophetically. It takes the readers very close to the end. And then we're going to be drawn back into our current situation next chapter in chapter 12. So we're, going, we're having these moments, travelings in, in time, if you will. The angels declare, as if all of that has happened, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of His Christ. As we look at this message of the change of kingdoms, we will consider four points. If you like taking notes, we'll consider four points. The first one, the contrast between the kingdoms. The second... What is involved in the change of the kingdoms? Three, why is God acting this way? And then fourth, how should we respond? The first point, the contrast between the kingdoms. The kingdom of the world is a very different kingdom than the kingdom of God. It's different in who leads them. The kingdom of God is clearly led by God. But who leads the kingdom of the world, of this world? Scripture is very clear about the answer to this question. The kingdom of the world is led by the devil. You say, how do we know that? Well, John chapter 12, Jesus referred to Satan when he said, the ruler of this world is about to be cast out. The ruler of this world. We're going to see that of the devil being cast out more in chapter 12 of Revelation. But this world is described at the present time under the rule of the devil because he was able to corrupt humanity into rebelling against God. So Jesus speaks about the devil as being the ruler of this world. Jesus is not the only one who says This, about who rules the kingdom of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says the following. And you, speaking to believers, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul is saying to the believers, when you used to be unbelievers or still uh, unsaved, you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. You were alive physically, but you were dead spiritually. And then he goes on to say what that looked like. He goes on to say, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is, at, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So those who are spiritually dead, even though physically alive, are following not only the course of this world, but they're following a prince. A prince of the air. The second half of the book of Revelation makes it very clear that the kingdom of this world is ruled by the devil who works through his agents to deceive the dwellers of the earth and to worship him as opposed to worshiping God. We'll see more of the devil's activity in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, which will be a, another interlude. You remember how in the book of Revelation, interludes are a big deal? We're going to see the, the final interlude next week in Revelation 12 and then Revelation 13 about the appearance of the dragon and the beast. It's going to have some special effects, friends. We're going to see this. This is not, this is not just, a, a, just for our imagination. It's also true. The kingdom of this world 
is under the rule of the devil for a while, but only for a while. There's a distinction between the world, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of this world. And the biggest difference is who leads them. One is led by God, the other is led by the devil. The kingdom of this world is also different in its nature, in its interests, in its values. Naturally, people who belong to the kingdom of the world have no desire to seek after God. Because that is not what they value. If anything, the contrary is the case. The people of the kingdom of the world value independence from God. They oppose God by pushing God out of their lives and keeping Him at a distance. Friends, by nature, the kingdom of the world has no interest in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world is the kingdom in which we have been born into. By birth, we were born with a natural inclination to stay distant from God. And worse, to actually oppose God. And if we act based on our birth-given nature, our inclination would be to keep God distant and even oppose His ways. Friends, any time you sense in you this inclination to keep God out of it, out of whatever decision you're, you're experiencing, out of whatever circumstance you're going through, if you feel in you a need or a, a temptation to keep God out of it, or, or worse, to actually oppose God's ways intentionally, even though you know what God requires. Friends, all of that is coming from our naturally given instincts that we acquired at birth. Because we have been born into a kingdom that intentionally opposes God. But heaven announces that at the very end of this age, when Christ will return, the kingdom of the world will be taken over by new management. Actually, it will not only have a new management, it will actually become a different kingdom altogether. It will become the kingdom of God and of Jesus, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, why should this be a big deal for us? Well, it means that at the present moment, the kingdom of God is still not fully manifested here on earth. Here on earth now, in the present moment, we get glimpses of the kingdom of God. But they're only glimpses. They're only foretastes. They are only appetizers. They say, how do we know that we get just glimpses of that? Well, Romans, I mean, Revelation 1, 5 and 6. The Apostle John said, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. The people whom God saves are the realm where God's reign begins to be manifested, begins to be put on display. That's why when we become saved, we receive Jesus, not only our Savior, but also as our Lord. You cannot have Jesus as a Savior without having Him as Lord as well. He saves us from the dominion of sin and darkness so that He can reign in our lives, so that we would be His servants. The people whom God saves are the realm where God's reign is put on display even while God's people still continue to live in the kingdom of this world. 
Actually, the church represents the reign of God. The church is a gathering of people in whom God reigns. God reigns in us not only individually when, we're, when He saves us, but then He also reigns in us corporately when He gathers us together. Every, 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 every Lord's Day gathering like this, like a Sunday, it's a kingdom gathering. We gather to anticipate what the kingdom will be like. We gather to declare that His reign is real. That the Redeemer has truly come to save and to reign uh, over us. Our life together as a church is to be a display on a small scale of the reign that God will ultimately bring upon the earth. So that when we forgive one another, when we bear each other's burdens, when we weep with those who weep, when we rejoice with those who rejoice, when we care for one another, when we seek one another out, when we go out of our way to put others and their interests before us, friends, we are putting on display the character of the king of the kingdom to which we now belong. We put on display the values of that kingdom. We put on display what it looks like for the invisible kingdom of God to have glimpses in the kingdom of this world of what is to come. God sent His Son Jesus to come among us, to die on a cross in the place of rebellious sinners. And God rose Him from the dead so that all those who would repent and trust in Christ would be rescued from their rebellion, from their corruption, and be given a a status, a citizenship into a new kingdom, into God's kingdom. Friends, our life together as a, as, a, as a people of God, is a glimpse of what is coming. Friends, if you don't know God as your Savior and as your King, I want to encourage you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. He wants to give you the right, the citizenship into that kingdom. Friends, if only you would repent and turn to Him. Yet, the message that the kingdom of God is here but not fully here, is here but only in glimpses, only in, in a foretaste, also tells us another implication, implication that we show the manifestation of God's reign here on earth so imperfectly. So imperfectly. If you look at our life together as a church, I am pretty sure that each of us could find at least one area of shortcoming that you see among us. That you see at least in someone in our church. There, there's, there's areas of shortcomings among us. We are inconsistent in the way we manifest the kingdom of God here on earth. We are inconsistent corporately and we're inconsistent personally. Each of us could look around and find one reason or more of why things are not the way they should be. And when we come to that realization, it's easy to feel deeply discouraged, even angry, upset, resentful. But that's why, dear friends, when we realize and and remember the kingdom of God is still to come in its fullness, it should help us not to give into times of despair when we see the shortcomings around us. Or when we see the shortcomings in our own lives. 
especially if you tend to be a perfectionist for whom failure and defeat are hard to live with, God's reign and kingdom are not fully manifested. We are representing His reign in broken ways, in broken snippets. A day will come when when we will be able to see His reign with no blemish, with no more shortcomings. Friends, I long for that day. Because I'm reminded daily of my own shortcomings. I long for that day. But when we realize that that kingdom of God is still to come, God is not yet fully reigning and manifesting His reign in His fullness because the kingdom of this world is still dominated, is still reigned by corruption, by brokenness, by the devil who incites, entices and incites people to worship Him and to worship themselves as opposed to the Creator. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the implication of the contrast of the two kingdoms is not only to realize who leads one and who leads the other. It's also to realize that the kingdom of God, while it's already here, Partially, in glimpses, we are still waiting for it to come in its fullness. Point number two, what is involved in the change of kingdoms? What is involved in the change of kingdoms? In our passage, we see two parts of the change of kingdoms. The first part uh, shows up in verses 15 through 18. And the second part shows up in verse 19. And I want to give you a clue. Verse 19 is the first part that is paused in half, and the second part of the second part of this will show up in chapter 15. We're going to see that. Revelation is breaking up at this point. We, we get pauses several times. So the first part of what's involved in the change of the kingdoms is verses 15 through 18. Then we're going to see the second part in verse 19, and then verse 19 will continue in chapter 15. So let's, let's go for it. Let's go through this, these two parts of what's involved in the change of kingdoms. There's, there's four words that are mentioned in verse 18. I wonder if you uh, pick up the, the words in verse 18. Wrath, judgment, rewards, and destruction. Four words that are involved in the change of the kingdoms. Wrath, judgment, rewards, and destruction. And we have to be prepared for all of these and realize what's coming. Verse 18, we read, The nations raged, but your wrath came. It's interesting that at the end of the age, when, when John receives a message about what will transpire when the change of kingdoms will take place, the first word that we have here is wrath, God's wrath. Why? Because the nations raged. This passage or this phrase, the nations raged, is an echo of Psalm 2 that Daniel read for us earlier in the service. And if, if you are able to go back to Psalm 2, um, I encourage you to open there and follow along. I'll summarize Psalm 2 for us because so much of what's going on in Revelation 11 here is actually a fulfillment of what, is, what was said in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2... If you have a chance to open there, 
In Psalm 2, the psalmist began with a question, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the psalmist goes on to answer his question. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage? Because they want independence from God. Why do the nations rage? Because they don't want God and his anointed one to be on the throne, to, re- to reign over them. The kings of the earth want their independence from God, our maker. That is at the heart of our rebellion. That is at the heart of the rage of the nations and of mankind. Independence from God. But the psalmist says that God, the God who sits in the heavens, laughs at the rage of the nations. He's not threatened by them. He's not starting to count to see, wow, can I, can I really go get at war against these nations and will I win this war? God doesn't need to make those plans. He actually laughs. In other words, our attempt to gain independence from God is totally futile. We have no chance in the end. In verse 5, Psalm 2 says um, that, we, we, that God speaks to them in His wrath and terrifies them in His fury. Psalm 2 promises that God will give the nations as heritage to His Son. The nations that rage against God, God says, I, I will take control over you. I will grab you. I will take control from you. And I will make you the inheritance of my son. The, the kings are warned. The nations are, are, are warned that the son will break the rebellious ones and the raging nations and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel so that the kings of the earth are warned. They're warned to do what? They're warned to serve the Lord, to turn away from their rebellion, to serve the Lord, and to kiss the Son. To have affections for the Son of the God who will one day reign over all things. Psalm 2 says, Kiss the Son, then lest the Son be angry and they perish in their ways. Psalm 2 closes with the words, For His wrath is quickly kindled. So the warning of Psalm 2 is a change of management over the kingdoms of the world, over the nations. This change will come with the wrath of God and of His Son. But Psalm 2 also closes with a final phrase, with a blessing. Blessing are all those who take refuge in Him. In other words, if we consider our rebellion, and if we continue in our rebellion independence from God, We will face His wrath. But if we turn to the Lord with our affections, with our hearts towards Him, if we take refuge in Him, we're declared blessed. Oh friends, this is such a great warning for those who have not yet turned away from their independence from God, from their rebellion of God. But it's also such a promise to those who want to turn to the Lord. They are blessed, those who find refuge in the Lord. Well, the elders around the throne of God in heaven reflect on Psalm 2 and use that language from Psalm 2 and begin describing the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The nations raged, but your wrath 
came. In other words, trying to fight against God will not work forever. It may feel like it's working now, but on the day that Christ will return, the rage of the nations will be subdued and overcome by the God who, is, who will prove to be unable to withstand His wrath. No one will be able to withstand. But the coming of God, the change of kingdoms, will bring not only wrath, it will bring judgment. All wrong, all rebellion against God, all unrighteousness will be brought to light and will receive its just consequences. Death will not be able to cover for our wrongdoings. Time will not be able to cover for our wrongdoings. The grave will not be able to be a blanket over our wrongdoings. The dead will be raised and judged. But for those who belong to God, for those who are changing their allegiance from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of, of God, look at what is awaiting for them in verse 18. The third word is reward. Reward. The 24 elders are praising God. And they say, for the time has come for rewarding your servants. What a difference of impact. What a difference of events. Instead of wrath, instead of judgment, the opposite rewards are coming to those who belong to God's kingdom. And who are the people who, who are going to receive the rewards? We see in verse 18 a, a longer description of, of the people who are in this category who will receive God's rewards. They are described as your servants. They are described as prophets and saints. They are described as those who fear your name, both small and great. Now, friends, I wonder if you recognize yourself among these, among those who are God's servants, among those who are God's prophets, among those who are God's saints, among those who are fearing God's name. Whom are you serving? Are you serving yourself? Are you serving the Lord? Are you serving the kingdom of this world? Or are you serving the kingdom of the Lord? Prophets and saints, you might say, well, I'm, I'm neither. I'm neither a prophet, I'm neither a saint. I want to remind you that all of us, all God's people, are called to be saints. And we are called such, not because of the change that we make to ourselves, but, but because of the change that God makes in us as we repent of our sins and trust in Christ. Even the notion of, of prophets. Uh, prophets are those who declare God's truth. If you remember earlier in the way the book of Revelation started in Revelation 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. And it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. In other words, all those whom God saves, God makes them to be priests in the service of God. They are prophets in the service of God. They are saints in the service of God who have been set apart for God. They are also those who fear God's name. Now, it's tempting to think of fearing God's name as sort of fearing God's judgments, especially in a book full of God's judgments. It might be tempted for us to think we must fear God's um, drastic uh, judgment of the earth. But here, to fear God does not mean to be terrified by Him. Those who fear God's name, both small and great, who are they? 
Who are those who fear God's name? This week I was reading in my quiet time through the book of Genesis and got to the place in Genesis where God asked Abraham to bring his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac goes, uh, Abraham goes with Isaac to the mountain that God told him to go. And at one point, Abraham gets ready to sacrifice his son because God commanded him as a test. And when he's ready to sacrifice his son, Isaac, the angel of the Lord appears to, to Abraham and, and says the following words, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. We might have said, I now see that you believe in God, or I now see that you obey God. But that's not what the angel said. They said, now I know that you fear God. In other words, fearing God means that we we are to respond to His Word. We, we believe and act upon His Word. When we fear God, it changes what we esteem, what we value most in this life. It changes what we depend upon most in this life. The fear of God is such a bigger, much bigger category than just thinking about being afraid of God. It's not about being afraid of God. It's about taking God at His Word, believing that He's able to do anything and everything, and it's worth following Him even at the cost of our lives. God's saints are those who fear Him. They are the ones who are receiving the reward. When Jesus comes, when the change of kingdoms will take place, it's not only a time of wrath, it's not only a time of judgment, it's also a time of rewards. What a blessed experience. A time to look forward to. But change of kingdoms will also mean not only wrath, judgment, and reward, will also mean destruction. Did you see the this verse, in, this phrase in verse 18, it will, it will be time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, who are the destroyers of the earth? We don't know yet as we read the book of Revelation. But if we keep reading it, if we get closer to the end of the book of Revelation, we find out who the destroyers of the earth are. The dragon. We'll meet him in chapter 12. The beast. We already met the beast actually in chapter 11 who killed the two witnesses, the false prophet, death and Hades will also be destroyed. Death and Hades is one of the destroyers we are most familiar with, aren't we? At every funeral we gather, we are reminded that death has its way with every one of us because of the corruption of sin of this world. But the time will come when God will destroy even death. A time will come when God will destroy all the destroyers of the earth. Those who have been the ultimate cause of brokenness, corruption, destruction of the earth. They will all be destroyed. In other words, when God comes to take over management, to take over the kingdom of this world, He will destroy all that has been destructive and corrupted in the world in the kingdom of this world. Friends, this is just part half of the story of what will happen. The second part of the, of the seventh trumpet continues with verse 19. And verse 19 
we see the answer to the question, and this will be the, the third point in the sermon. Why is God acting this way? In verse 19, we see more explanation of why God is doing what he's doing and why he's doing it that way. Verse 19 picks up an image that will reappear in chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. Today, we will only look at verse 19. And when we get to chapter 15, we'll pick up the connection and see how these things are connected. But the second part of the seventh trumpet gives us another point. And this is the reason why God is acting this way. John sees in his vision something bizarre, something unique, a temple, the temple in heaven opening up. And not only is the, op- the temple in heaven opening up, but the Ark of the Covenant can now be seen. In the Old Testament, only the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies and be able to see the Ark of the Covenant. Here we now see a picture of John seeing the temple in heaven and the, and the Ark of the Covenant is now being seen. What a strange picture. What does it signify? Why would the Ark of the Covenant appear at the close at the close of the seven trumpets of God's judgment. In the Old Testament, the appearance of the Ark of the Covenant has several meanings. The Ark was a symbol of God's presence among His people. The Ark was a symbol of God's covenant with His people. The Ark appears here in Revelation 11 because it helps us make sense why God is acting in this kind of judgment against the earth. God is bringing his judgments and rewards because of his covenant. His covenant has been broken. the, The people of the earth, the people of the world have broken God's ways. And now God is bringing his judgments and rewards. God is acting consistently with what he revealed in his word. God is acting consistently with what he promised and what he warned. The fact that God's judgments against the earth appear as seven trumpets, followed by the appearance of the ark, is a feature that appears only one time, one other time in the Bible, in the Old Testament. There was only one time when God brought seven trumpets blowing around, followed by the ark of the covenant. It's in the book of, Judge, uh, book of Joshua. Chapter 6, when God commanded Joshua to take over Jericho. The conquest of Jericho was led by seven priests with seven trumpets, followed by the Ark of the Covenant. Jericho was a city that was standing between God's people and the promised land. Jericho was a city doomed to to destruction. And when God commanded Joshua to take the seven trumpets and then followed by the Ark of the Covenant, God gave a pattern of what will come at the end of the age. The fact that God's judgments of the earth are described through the seven trumpets followed by the Ark of the Covenant suggests that the conquest of the kingdom of this world follows a pattern similar to the conquest of Jericho. 
In order for God to bring His people into the inheritance that He has promised, He must first bring down the obstacle between us and that inheritance. And that obstacle is the kingdom of this world, ruled by the devil and his agents. In order for God's reign to be fully manifested, it means that God must take out all those who oppose God and his people, just as Jericho was in the way between God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises. No wonder that a feature of the coming of God at the end of the age is the feature of earthquakes. We'll see that again several times throughout the book of Revelation. But notice what accompanies a vision of the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. These were manifestations of the coming of God to be with His people. The language appears at this Uh, at, At the throne of God, the language appears at the seventh seal. The language appears at the seventh trumpet. The language appears at the seventh bowl. God is bringing His presence. But part of bringing His presence among His people is that God must take out the enemies. And the kingdom of the world comprises the entire package of God's enemies. Now, how should we respond How should we respond to this message that describes the judgments of God against the earth with this picture like a Jericho conquest? How should we respond? Well, we can take our cues from the way heaven responds. Heaven responds with praise and thanksgiving. Did you notice that verses 15 through 18 are uttered in a context of praise, thanksgiving, and loud shouting? The message of judgment in this part is not a message of, of terror. This is, this is a context of rejoicing. This is a context of thanksgiving and celebration. All the prior judgments that we have been exposed to might, might lead us to say, wow, the book of Revelation is so heavy. Who wants to go through it? All these judgments, all these, these terrible pictures of what God will do. Yes, that's true. But look at how heaven responds. Praise adoration, thanksgiving. Friends, the reaction of heaven gives us a clue that for the people of God, we can look forward to what's coming with a similar kind of response. Anticipating, even now, thanksgiving and adoration and praise to God. We can rejoice that God will take up His reign in full manifestation. We can give God thanks because no power is greater than Him. No enemy is stronger than Him. No reign is, no, is longer than Him. But that means, dear friends, that if we hold on to our kingdom, if we hold on to our reign, if we hold on to our control and our agenda and our ways, we might find ourselves crushed along with the kingdom of this world. For those who do not care about God's kingdom... For those who do not belong to his kingdom, for those who do not serve God, but instead serve themselves or the kingdom of this world, the news that God will come with reign in power is terrible news. It's like the people of Jericho. Friends, I wonder which camp you will find yourself at that time. Which camp do you find yourself this morning? I wonder if the coming of the Lord will be for you a a sign of, of rejoicing and thanksgiving, or it will be a sign of trembling 
and fear and uncertainty? Are you looking towards that time with hope and expectation or in dread and uncertainty? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a great God. A God who knows how to communicate to your people all that you are about to do with the kingdom of this world. God, you have given us a warning. You have given us a promise. Help us to take your warnings seriously. and Help us to believe your promises and trust in them in a way that leads us to turn to Jesus as our King. To turn to Him as the one who is the Lord of our lives. As the one who rescues us from the rebellion of our sin and of our bondage. Father, we pray that King Jesus would reign over our own hearts in new ways, in fresh ways. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet committed their lives, who has not yet surrendered their lives to to the reign of Christ, to Him as their Savior and Lord, I pray, Lord, that that You would work in their hearts, awaken them, awaken them and transform them into Your kingdom before the kingdom of this world will be taken over and destroyed like Jericho has. Father, we pray that you would have mercy and give us the strength to follow you until the very end. Amen.